your way over to Genesis chapter 44. In our study here tonight, we're going to be looking at the final testing uh, of Joseph that he gives to his brothers. The final testing from Joseph to his brothers. It's been uh, an agonizing thing that they've had to endure, but no more agonizing than what they've already put their father Jacob through or what they've done to Joseph for that matter. We see with these brothers here, reap what you sow. The things that they've done to others, they are now experiencing themselves in this kind of agony and testing and trial that they are themselves getting put through. But understand something here. This testing is not meant to torment his brothers. It's meant to train his brothers. It's to bring them to the place that God wanted for them all along. This is the, the fruit of testing. This is the good work that comes out of testing and trials. Just as God tested Abraham's faith or to see the genuineness of his faith, so too now we're seeing Joseph testing the genuineness of his brother's repentance. And so that's what we're looking at here tonight, testing and transformation. Look at verse one of chapter 44. It says there, and he commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they'd gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Verse six, so he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said in verse 10, he said, now also let it be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. So what we've been seeing here in our study through Genesis with these testings that have gone on, the brothers have come to Egypt because of a famine that's broken out. They need food. They hear that Egypt has got food because God has placed Joseph there to prepare for this famine. It's a wonderful thing. The brothers come. They don't recognize Joseph at all. It's been years since they've seen Joseph and, and they think he's probably just sold, the, sold away living in somebody's house as a servant of that household. Let, they're not at all thinking that he's going to be the ruler over Egypt. He's clean shaven. He's in, he's in clothes that are fit for royalty. I mean, Joseph is not at all somebody that they're going to recognize. So they don't know him, but the, the, Joseph understands who his brothers are. That he recognizes them very much so. And you see, Joseph begins to put them through these tests, again, not to hurt them, but to see if they've changed, to see if there's been a, a change of heart, a transformation in them. So he desires to keep one of the brothers behind so that they would go back home and bring back the youngest. They want to see, is Benjamin really uh, around? Have they conspired and done something next to Benjamin now in Joseph's absence? So he sends them back. 
They come back. He's put money in their sacks. They find it. They come back. They return the money. And so there's been all these tests that have happened. And where we left off last time is that the brothers all come together in Joseph's house and he prepares a meal for them. And he sits them all in order of their age. Some that they would have thought, how in the world could this have happened? Remember we saw that was like one in a, a, a 30 or 40 million chance. I mean, it's pretty crazy that that would happen. It's not by coincidence. But Joseph is looking to test his brothers. And so now again, he's sending them off so that they would go and, and, and bring back now the father. But now he puts a cup into the sack of Benjamin. And he has his servant go out and track them down. So the ploy here now is to hide this cup in the sack to really see how his brothers are going to respond now when the youngest is found guilty of something. Now this cup, it says, was the cup that Joseph used for divination, as it said in, in verse 5. Now divination, as seen here, was the practice of foretelling the future or having some supernatural insight into something by observing the movement of the liquid that would be put into the cup here. Now, first of all, you might be thinking, why is Joseph practicing divination? And actually, I very much doubt that Joseph was indeed practicing divination in the way that the, the pagans would or the Egyptians practiced that art. Joseph, we know, he knew his source of insight was from God, that all this was a supernatural work from God. This was this practice that divination was was something that was forbidden later on in, in Jewish law. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 10 talks about that. So it's possible that Joseph simply used this cup more so just as a prop, you know, to keep his brothers thinking that he was fully Egyptian and wanting to engage in this art of divination that was something that God's people certainly wouldn't be a part of. And, and then to pretend that this cup had and held some very special uh, treasure uh, or value to them, that this is no ordinary cup. So he's making this sound like, man, this is, this is an important part of Joseph's life, even though we know it, it had no value to it in the supernatural. But he's presenting it as some a very great value, as a prop, again, to test his brothers. Now, the response from the brothers is rather presumptuous. It reveals the confidence they have in their innocence, but it also reveals a bit of a lack of wisdom because earlier they were surprised to find something in their sacks that they didn't know anything about. Now they're saying, listen, if you find this cup in our sack, then let that person die. I mean, that's pretty presumptuous. We need to be careful with the things that we say. It's important that we be slow to speak. Take time to observe and know the whole context or the situation of things that are going on before speaking rashly. Proverbs 20 verse 25 says, it is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. So you need to be careful in these things. And these brothers are ready to throw this out there and say, ah, let that person die. Little did they know and realize that Benjamin is being set up here simply to test all of them. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says there in verse 11, then each man speedily let down a sack to the ground and each opened a sack. So he searched, this is Joseph's servant, he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. 
Now, one thing I didn't go over was just kind of what we're looking at here in our outline through Genesis 44 and chapter 45 here tonight. We're going to look at the testing, what we're seeing right now. The transformation that the testing is meant to bring, the transformation, then we'll see the revealing of Joseph. This is exciting to see. And then the provision that's made for them. But here we begin to see in this testing uh, a work that's taking place now for them. Because these brothers now, they had an opportunity to just leave Benjamin high and dry. To say, Benjamin, what are you doing? All right, take him away. We're going back home. We're getting out of this place. Every time we come here, man, something bad happens to us. We're getting out of Egypt and we're not coming back again. But Benjamin, sorry, sayonara, this is on you, man. You got to take the fall on this one. They could have easily done that. They could have dismissed Benjamin. They could have rejected. They could have left Benjamin high and dry here. But they don't do that. We're seeing this change here. I mean, they could have gone back home, concocted another story like they did with Joseph to Jacob, saying, Benjamin, yeah, must have been torn apart by wild animals again. They didn't even have to make up a story. They could have said, hey, he got caught stealing from them and they've kept him. I mean, they could have gone back to Jacob and said, listen, this is not on us. We tried everything we could, but they've taken him. Simply out of our control. It would have been easier to return home without Benjamin than it was to go to Jacob with a a false story they made up about Joseph. But notice again the change of heart that we see here. What do we see them doing in verse 13? They, They tear their clothes. These brothers find that Benjamin is guilty even though Benjamin didn't do it. Set up. They find and they think He's guilty. They tear their clothes. It was a sign of great grief and mourning. They were in great anguish at the prospect of their brother being taken from them. Ironically, it's the same way that Jacob responded when, they, when he heard of Joseph's potential death. He tore his clothes and now they are tearing their clothes as a sign of grief. They are feeling the same kind of anguish that they put their father through. But we're seeing a change of heart in these brothers. They're not just flippantly trying to dismiss this and move on. They're grieved over this. They're mourning this. And notice too that each brother is taking part. This isn't just one of them. This is one person tearing the clothes. They're all doing so. They're all unified in this. They are standing together like they hadn't before. And it says, they each returned to the city. They each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. The end of verse 13. They're not going to abandon Joseph, or Benjamin, I should say. They're not going to forsake him like they did with Joseph. Even though Benjamin now is the, the favorite child, you would think. He's the one, the last remaining son from Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved. The favorite child. They're not going to abandon him. There's a different attitude in these brothers. They don't want to bring any added hurt or pain to Jacob. They've seen the devastation that the loss of Joseph brought them or brought their dad, and they don't want to see that happen again. They're, they're willing to face the judgment of this world leader and to face that judgment together. They all go together. See, they're thinking more about others than they are themselves. That's the, the work of chastening. It's to bring us to that place that God would have us. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Because this is a great passage that I think 
we need to have a real good grasp of an understanding of to see and to know just the heart of the Father. Hebrews 12 and starting in verse 5. Hebrews 12 verse 5 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. It says, My sons, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see what chastening does? It trains us up. It first of all reveals to us that we are actually children of God. Because he, he, he chastens whom he loves. And we get trained up by it. You see, chastening is meant to remove the dross, sound down, sand down the rough edges, make us more like Christ, which proves us to be indeed children of God. There's good works that come from this. And we look at what Joseph is doing and you think, oh man, Joseph, are you just kind of having a little bit too much fun at your brother's expense? But Joseph is, I'm sure, just desiring to jump on, reveal who he is, but he sees a more important work in making sure that their hearts have changed through this. In the book, Joseph, Patriarch of Character, Butler says this. He says, we note here four great purposes behind the trials God sends us, which can also be seen in the test Joseph gave his brothers. First of all, trials are to prove testimony. Joseph tried his brothers to prove their testimony. They had, they had said they were true men back in chapter 42, verse 11. We're true men. We're honest men. But the tests were needed to convince those around them that this was so. So God sends trials to us to validate our testimony and make our witness more effective. Often only trials will convince those around us that our profession of faith has fidelity to it. Secondly, trials are to promote fellowship. The brothers were out of fellowship with Joseph because of their sin against him. But the tests restored that fellowship. God, too, uses trials oftentimes to bring the wayward person back into fellowship with himself. Thirdly, trials are to proclaim grace. During the tests, Joseph gave the tested ones a number of tokens of mercy. Joseph gave the brothers back their money. He gave them liberal amounts of grain and he gave them provision, by the way, in trials God often does likewise. Though he, seems to, uh, though he seems to frown on us in the trial, yet tokens of mercy and grace will be present for us. We must make much to them when he seems a stranger to us, he says. They will encourage and enable us to survive the trial successfully. Lastly, Butler says, trials produce prosperity. Joseph's test, like God's trials, eventually brought prosperity to those who were tried. From the land of poverty to the land of plenty, 
was the experience of Joseph's brothers. So too, our trials enrich us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's great reward that comes out of trials. There's a great work that takes place in the midst of trials. And we're seeing that happening here with Joseph and his brothers. Let's look at the transformation that takes place now here in verse 14, back in Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44, verse 14, reading on. It says, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Let me stop right there. Verse 14, it's interesting that we see in the book of Genesis, eight references spoken just like Joseph did here when he said, what is this you have done? What is this you've done? Seven other times in the book of Genesis, eight all together, seven other times, we see that term being used. What is this you've done? We saw it happen with God to Eve in the garden, God to Cain after he killed Abel, Pharaoh to Abraham after lying about Sarai, Abimelech to Abraham after he lied about Sarah, Abimelech to Abraham the second time. Abraham took a while to learn that lesson here. Jacob to Laban after he deceived concerning his bride and Laban to Jacob after he stole away. Joseph now is the last in that series in Genesis of that phrase that we see repeatedly, what is this you've done? We see it only nine other times in all other books uh, of the Bible, all combined. But here in Genesis, we see it repeated often. And the statement is important because what we're seeing in that is that it's calling individuals to account. It's more than just trying to get basic information from someone. It's about calling someone to account and to accountability. And most of the statements are made to the covenant people of God by those who are outside of the covenant people of God. Again, it's calling into accountability. The world often expects more from those who claim to be representing the Lord. Are we representing the Lord well? Are we living in a manner where others would look at and say, what is this you have done? Why are you behaving that way? Why are you acting that way? Why are you responding in this way? Oh, I pray that as we seek to be light in this world and represent the Lord, that we are not giving an occasion for somebody to question or to have to call us into account. Well, it goes on to say in verse 16, then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now that's an interesting statement that the brothers say here. They, they said, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Now they're quick to recognize and see that their sin cannot be hidden before God. You know, it's, it's kind of a very sad thing, isn't it? When we think our sin can be blocked out from our relationship with God, that our sin can be just sort of overlooked or excused or not seen, we have a, a very good way of kind of deceiving ourselves to think that 
our sin isn't seen or brought into account. Many people feel they can just keep on as normal after engaging in sin, but we understand that sin must be dealt with. Don't think that God ignores it or overlooks it or just thinks or just think that it's all been covered at Calvary. Now it has judicially, but practically and relationally, we need to bring it before God and seek his forgiveness and cleansing so we can walk in fellowship with him. See, the attitude of these brothers without a Joseph had, has been demonstrated over and over. When Joseph was tempted with Potiphar's wife, Joseph's response was, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can, I, how can I behave this way and sin against God? Joseph knew that his sin is not overlooked or hidden or can be kept private from God. But these brothers seem to have been living for years now where they suddenly come to the point thinking, oh, God has finally found out our iniquity and sin. Perhaps they're thinking that they just keep quiet. This sin will just go away, but that's never the case, is it? Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 says, but if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. We cannot escape sin or, or hide from it. It needs to be brought into account. Don't let sin drive you away from God but may it drive you to God because it's there that we'll find mercy and grace. It's there that we need to bring it to account before God, confess your sin. Because as 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have our fellowship, our relationship with the Lord restored where we can walk as one. Sin is gonna get in the way of that. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to keep it private or hide it. Bring it to the Lord. Let him deal with it. He's already taken care of that through the cross. Now here's where we really begin to see now that full heart of this transformation. It's amazing. F.B. Meyer wrote, in all literature, there's nothing more pathetic than this appeal or a cause for, for pity. H.C. Leopold said, There's, this is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man for depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose it stands unexcelled. And Barnhouse called it the most moving address in all of the word of God. Look at what we hear from Judah now as we pick it up in verse 18. It says this, Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young, his brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. 
Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Verse 30, now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. So here's Judah now stepping up and standing out as a man that's willing to lay down his very life for another. This is huge right here. Jesus Christ, Judah's descendant, the line of the tribe of Judah demonstrated that same attitude. Jacob will crown Judah with kingship because he demonstrates that he has become fit to rule according to God's ideal of kingship, that the king serves the people, not vice versa. Judah is transformed from one who sells his brother as a slave to one who is willing to be the slave for his brother. With that offer, he exemplifies Israel's ideal kingship. This is a great picture of what Jesus has done for us. All throughout this story, the brothers must have been wondering, what's it gonna take to get a break here? What's it gonna take for us just to have a break here? Everything seems to be against us. What does Joseph want from us? We've left Simeon as a prisoner. We brought back Benjamin. We've returned the money plus double. We brought almonds and honey from our own land, the best of the land. We bowed before him four times. What more could he want? The answer, Joseph didn't want anything from his brothers. He just simply wanted his brothers themselves. He wanted his brothers. He wanted them to lay down themselves. This is the same for us. God isn't interested in what we can bring him to appease him. He just wants us. And he wants us in a right relationship with him. And the amazing thing is that he gave us everything to make that happen. He gave us his one and only son that we could be united with him and through him. God gave it all so that we could be in relationship with him. God's not looking for something from you. He's just looking for you to come and be right with him, to lay down your life to receive his. This is what Joseph is asking for his brothers. And we're seeing that Joseph is finally seeing that transition and transformation in his brothers. Judah is willing to say, no. I cannot bear to see my father go through this. I cannot bear to see Benjamin be left here alone. I will stand in his place. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He stood in our place. When we deserved judgment, we deserved the wrath of God. We deserve death. Jesus stood in our place and he received that for us so that we could be spared. Amazing love that we've received. Well, here now we see 
the great revealing now, chapter 45. Then Joseph, it says in verse one, could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph has now seen all that he's been longing for. You can bet that Joseph has been fighting and resisting that urge to just share with his brothers, it's me, Joseph. He's not been putting them through this test and kind of getting some kind of joys out of this. Well, maybe a little bit, but I don't think this has been his purpose. This is not something that he's, you know, sadistically trying to get some revenge. I'm sure he's been agonizing, wanting to reveal who he is. But he's taking them through this time. He's been, he's been having to remove himself and weep because he just wants to embrace his brothers, I'm sure. But he's been more interested in seeing their heart change and now he's seeing that. He's been holding back these emotions and excitement so that a better work could emerge. Finally, Joseph can no longer contain it and he orders all the servants to leave while he made himself known to his brothers. What an incredible reading this was. And he, even having his servants leave, I mean, they still all heard all, all around town that is hearing this <laughs> incredible weeping and joyous celebration taking place. Incredible reading that must have been. The shock of his brothers who suddenly realized that this prime minister of Egypt, the one that they've been fearing is their long lost brother. Just think about what they're experiencing and feeling. The great outpouring of, emer of emotion was incredible. Now, this whole account that we read reminds us of the work that's gonna be taking place with Israel in a future day. Hosea chapter five, verse 15 says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. See, that prophecy speaks of Jesus revealing himself when they acknowledge their offense, just as it happens in our story with Joseph. You see, God's desire and judgment and chastening is not to destroy us as we've seen, but it's to lead us to repentance and restoration. Sadly, it's oftentimes not until we're afflicted that we wake up to our sin and folly and, and see that need to turn back to the Lord. But praise the Lord, when we turn to him, he will answer, he will make himself known. We see that happening here for the brothers as they finally lay everything down, Joseph makes himself known. And this sentiment, this idea is echoed in the familiar passage in Zechariah when there will be a great mourning among the remnant of Israel when they recognize their Messiah is Jesus, the one whom they crucified. And I'll pour on the house of David, it says in Zechariah 12, 10, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as, he, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There's gonna be a great awakening in that remnant of Israel in those last days at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back and they recognize the very one whom they pierced and they crucified, it's Jesus all along. And I love how Joseph calls his brothers there in, in verse four. 
when he says, please come near to me. I think that's so neat. Joseph wants his brothers to understand the blessing of being united to him. Just as Jesus calls us oftentimes in scriptures and he invites us to come to him. To come unto him, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, verse 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus gives us and extends that invitation to us often, just like Joseph does to his brothers. Please come near to me. Come unto Jesus, because it's there that we receive all that we need. Now, I think you really need to kind of understand what these brothers must be thinking, right? I mean, Joseph, it seems like he's having to kind of urge them, come, please, come unto me. We see them all just kind of standing back, it seems. Now, remember what they must be thinking, because Joseph has to repeat to them that, that he's Joseph, their brother. And he says, whom you sold in, into Egypt at the end of, of verse four. I love that. It's like, like they need that reminder, right? Oh, stop breaking that up. It's me, Joseph. Remember the guy that you sold, that you threw in a pit, that he sold into slavery in Egypt? Remember, that's me, right? Now, they hear them. They must be thinking, oh, no. Now we're really in trouble. Because not only are we standing before now this prime minister, this lord over all of Egypt, but now we're finding out he is our brother whom we have treated wrongfully. This guy now, is surely out for revenge. And this guy has the power to truly revenge, to truly bring that revenge against us. They must be freaking out. Remember, look at what it says there. It, it says in verse uh, three, brothers, brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. That means that they were trembling inwardly. It means to palpitate. They were like shaking in their boots. They're just like, oh no, they are freaking out right now. And Joseph has to, Encourage them, please come to me. And look how Joseph just continues to deal with this in verse five. I love this. Verse five, Joseph says, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Reading on in verse nine, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I'll provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty for there are still five years of famine and behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin. See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. So, this narrative that we're looking at here in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers, it's not only concerned with the change of heart in Joseph's brothers, but it's concerned with the change of heart in Joseph as well. 
because of all that Joseph has had to endure and go through, it could have easily made him bitter, upset with God, vengeful towards his brothers. You think Joseph could have had every right to feel some of those things because of all that he's had to go through. But Joseph, not just his brothers, but Joseph is a changed man. The perspective he carries is a godly one and one that we can all gain from. Look at how Joseph is sure to emphasize the work and the providence of God the whole way through all of this. Joseph has come to know that his circumstances were not just the result of man's actions, but they're by the leading of God. God is the one that has ordained his steps and has led him to this strategic and important place there in Egypt. I think we have to recognize that all the things that we endure or go through in life, the circumstances that come are, are opportunities that God can take and use to bring about his good purposes. That's what Romans 8.28 tells us, and that's what this story with Joseph and his brothers really highlights, Romans 8.28. God works all things for the good to those that love him and are called according to his purposes, or all things work together for good. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, A man's steps are the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? I don't think Joseph was sitting there going through each of these things, being sold as a slave, thinking, oh, this is awesome. This is okay. This is all part of God's plans. Gets brought into Potiphar's house and gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, gets thrown in prison. I'm sure Joseph's not sitting there going, oh, this makes sense, yeah. This is probably what God needs to do to bring me to the place of exaltation. Like, I'm sure Joseph's not thinking that way. But that's what Proverbs 20 says, the man steps are the Lord. God's the one that's leading, orchestrating. God's the one that providentially leads everyone beyond our understanding. How can a man understand his own ways? I'm sure Joseph, at the very beginning of all this, had very much lingering doubts and questions. He probably couldn't have understood all these ways that God was working behind the scenes, but now he sees quite clearly that God has been the one that's been in control and leading every step providentially by his care. Orchestrating all these events to bring about his good purposes. And Joseph sees clearly God's good purposes. And I love how often we see there in verse five to nine, Joseph just bringing up that it was God. Verse five, for God sent me. Verse seven, God sent me. Verse eight, but God. And then in verse nine, God has made me Lord of Egypt. He's just giving all credit and glory to God. But here's what Joseph responds with to show how God has been good in all of this. Seeing God's good purpose in that. First of all, um, I don't have those written down here. Sorry, I thought I had a slide for that. First of all, we see there in verse five, Joseph say, for God sent me before you to do what? To preserve life, to preserve life. And this isn't just the life of his family. This isn't just to preserve my life or preserve you 11 brothers and our father's life, it's simply to preserve life. Joseph recognizes that God's brought him to Egypt and elevated him to a point where he, by his wisdom, can begin to bring together uh, preparation for a, a coming famine that would provide food and resources, not just for his family, but for all people that came to Egypt. 
Secondly, he sees that there's been, God sent him, verse seven, before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. Now, now this gets a little bit more closer to home and, and personal. It's to preserve a, pos a posterity for you. See, God has made a promise to Abraham and to his seed. Joseph knows that if anything happens to Jacob and his offspring, God's promises would be void. Joseph has seen the purpose now in sending him to Egypt so that his family personally would be protected. God did that not just by sending Joseph ahead to Egypt, but by miraculously and wonderfully making him a ruler over all of Egypt, the guy that can call the shots, the guy that can invite this family as foreigners to come into the land now. And thirdly, Joseph sees that God is at work in just simply exalting him. That's what he saw in his dream long ago that just kind of brought the brothers to the edge of their anger or over the edge of their anger and desiring to get him out of the way. He saw his brothers bowing down to him. And now we see Joseph, as he says, exalted, but it's God that did it. This isn't a work of himself. God has exalted him, it says, made him a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house in verse eight, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. That's pretty huge. Only God could do that. And this has got God's fingerprints just all over it. And Joseph is sure to give all glory to God and claim that none of this came about by his own wisdom and ingenuity. This is not a work of Joseph. This is fully God that's been leading. And Joseph is quick, right before his brothers, to say, listen, all these things, God's taken and God's used it. God's the one that's brought me here. Don't blame yourselves. Don't beat yourselves up, he's telling his brothers. God's the one that's done this. And then it says there at the in, in verse 15, moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. That's just a beautiful picture here of reconciliation and reunion. I think it's gonna be like that for us in heaven. I think we'll be shedding tears of joy, just being able to embrace Jesus and just talk with them. I think that's what, you know, is gonna be happening when we really, he wipes away every tear from our eyes. I think we'll be just shedding tears of joy, just being able to be with Jesus and be reconciled, reunited together with him. I think it's gonna be a wonderful thing that we're gonna experience and they're experiencing that right here. Man, that would have been neat to see and just hear what they're all talking about. Oh man, that's exciting. Verse 16 though, reading on. Now, the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. Let me just stop right there. So 
look here at the way they're being treated. There's just an outpouring of grace. They're just being loaded down with goodness. And I love that statement in verse 20. Don't worry about your goods. The best of all the land is yours. It's so, the, the same for us. The best is yet to come. We're not living for this world or for temporary things. We need to set our eyes off of the world and look at what God has for us because it's far better. The best is yet to come for us. Don't worry. It says, don't worry about your goods. Uh, do, we, do we spend more time focused on our worldly possessions, on our goods, on our being comfortable here in this world? Or are we recognizing, man, these things are just temporal. We have something that we're, that, that's far better that we're looking forward to, that we're holding on to, that we're looking ahead to. It doesn't mean that you can't own things, that you can't do things now. That's not what I'm saying. But are you living for those things? Are those things having a hold of you? Or you said, oh no, these are temporal. There's something far better that I'm waiting for and looking forward to. And then look at what we read here in verse 24. So he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Joseph once again, and I, and I love how we see him just loading up Benjamin there in verse 22, loading him up even more, hurling more goods his way. And you think, why? I mean, the, the testing is over, isn't it? But we need to continue to be reminded that we live under the Lord. We're not living for other things. The brothers are having to learn. There's never a need to complain or whine over what others are receiving. And there's a great place to be when you are no longer concerned with what's happening with others or how they might be receiving greater blessings than you might be. We've all been blessed through the salvation of Jesus Christ. We've all been blessed with eternal life. We've all been blessed with that hope of heaven. We have great riches and our inheritance is in heaven. Our lives are his now. Don't be focused on what you might not have in comparison to others, but be focused on simply living your life unto Jesus and for his glory. That's the life of wealth. And the brothers are experiencing that and receiving that. They're not complaining now over Benjamin getting more. So they, they're sent off and, and Joseph says that line at the end of verse 24, see that you do not become troubled along the way. And that's always a challenge for the believer, isn't it? For the believer in this world. I mean, we're constantly having to fight against temptation, against the, the, the pull of sin. We're, we're constantly getting bumped up against by the things of this world. There's a lot of things that can discourage, dismay, or distress us in this world. But as Christians, we don't need to be discouraged, dismayed, or distressed over these things. Like was said earlier, it's all temporary. We're, we're headed for a land of plenty. It's heaven, and it's gonna be glorious. Don't be tripped up and derailed by these temporary things. Keep your eyes on the goal, because it will be more than worth it. And then lastly, verse 25, they, they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told them all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived 
Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, as news comes to Jacob, what does he almost he almost loses his heart. It says that his heart stood still. It skipped a beat here. He kind of gasped, ready to faint. He's beside himself, not knowing what to think. Jacob is marked with weakness and unbelief. But notice in that last verse, it's Israel who rises up. Jacob's new name, that new character. He's often still referred to as Jacob because he's still battling that old character, that old nature. But there's times when you see that, that new nature emerge Jacob is a man of unbelief it's a man of weakness but now Israel rises up and Israel is marked with belief and resolve and he says it is enough Joseph my son is still alive see when we allow God to be our Lord and when we are truly being governed by God in the spirit which the name Israel means governed by God when we allow ourselves to be governed by God, led by his spirit, we too can rise up in moments of weakness and know simply that he is enough. That's something that we cannot do in our own. We are weak in our own, but when we lean upon him, when we're led of him, when we're filled with his spirit, governed by his spirit, we can say, it's enough. I can move forward. I can handle this. Because it's not me, it's the Lord that works in me where I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Israel is seeing that, learning that. And Israel is gonna be blessed as he rises up by faith and begins to step out and move forward. And we'll pick that up in the new year as we see Jacob now reunited with Joseph. Exciting things to see. So uh, let's pray. Do we have another song to do? Yeah. Or we, okay. Oh yeah, let's do a song. Let's do a song. Let's stand together. Let me pray and let's just uh, take some time and just worship the Lord before we get back to the dessert table, which you're welcome to do here. But let's uh, take some time and let this word just kind of sink in and uh, take that to the Lord and just ask him ways that he can work that word into us and reveal his, again, work that he wants to do with us. So Lord, we thank you, God, for this night that we can gather together. We praise you, God. We thank you that you're at work and that you are good, Lord, and that all the things that we see happening in our lives, every circumstance or trial we go through, God, we need to understand as we see here today that you are with us, and God, you're leading us through. Where we might think that this is uh, a result of uh, circumstances, a result of man, help us to see, but God, but God is leading. God's at work. God's orchestrating all things, and let us trust you, God, May we not be like Jacob, filled with doubt and weakness, but may we be those governed by you, God, that can rise up in strength and in your power and with faith move forward. So Lord, lead us now in these things, we pray in your name, amen.